All opinions expressed in this podcast by participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinion of BioVerge Inc. or its affiliates. The participants' opinions are based upon information they consider reliable, but neither BioVerge or its affiliates warrants its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied on as such. Nothing contained in and accompanying this podcast shall be construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation to purchase any security by BioVerge, its portfolio companies, or any third party. Past performance is not indicative of future results. You're listening to the BioVerge Podcast with Neil Litton. Neil, today we've got Eric Topol. For listeners not familiar with Eric, who is he? Eric is a physician, scientist, author, and professor. Eric was voted the number one most influential physician leader in the U.S. by Modern Healthcare. He's published over 1,200 peer-reviewed articles. He has three best-selling books. Uh, For those of you who are interested in the convergence of technology being applied to the healthcare vertical, uh, they are both fantastic reads, Deep Medicine and The Patient Will See You Now. Uh, He is also the founder and director of Translational Medicine at Scripps Research. You know, in 2009, I got to write a profile of him for the Journal of Life Sciences. And, you know, he had this vision that he brought to Scripps of not only integrating uh, genomics into the clinic, but marrying it to technology to, you know, understand the relationship between genotype and phenotype. It's, you know, it's not an outrageous thing to hear today, but, you know, this was over a dozen years ago. How much of an advocate has he been for that kind of vision of new medicine? Oh, I think he's been a huge advocate for for that for for bringing technological innovation to the healthcare domain, and and I think he's really you know I've been a big fan of Eric's for many years now, right? He he really is a, a thought leader when it comes to applying a lot of these digital health uh, technologies and digital health solutions to um, you know different problems in, in healthcare, and he he does a lot in the cardiovascular space. Um, so, you know, I think if, if you take a look at a lot of his publications, if you take a look at his books, right, he talks a lot about sort of the future of health and how things like artificial intelligence and machine learning can be applied to healthcare. Um, and I think he, he really is a thought leader in the space. And, you know, today's conversation isn't so much going to be about the digital health front um, that many of us have have known Eric and his work for many years. You know, we're going to focus really on the Delta variant and, and COVID, but he really is a thought leader and he's established himself again as a, a, a real thought leader in in these you know times of the pandemic. And I think, you know, his his Twitter feed and, and a lot of the articles he writes, his op ed pieces, I think he really does a public service in helping to sort fact from fiction. Uh, in the face of this, you know, global pandemic, and you know, I, I hope to actually get into sort of the the convergence of the the digital health and technology aspect of what he's done and how he's applying that to to COVID these days. His Twitter feed has been really a reality check on COVID. What are you hoping to hear from him today? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I'm really hoping to get a good understanding of the Delta variant, where we are today in terms of the third wave of the pandemic. I mean, I think most of us were, were hoping that once the vaccines would roll out, right, the pandemic would, would largely dissipate and we would move on and get back to our normal daily lives. Right? That has not happened, and that is because of the Delta variant. So I, I really want to talk to Eric about this idea of um, uh, you know breakthrough infections. You know what that means. You know what we what our failures are as a society in terms of being able to control the the the, the virus. Right, the the lack of you know enough people getting vaccinated. What we can do to help encourage people to get vaccinated. Um, and how our response needs to change to the virus based on the virus itself changing. Well, if you're all set. I am all set, Danny. Let's do it. Eric, I'm incredibly excited to welcome you to the show today. Uh, Believe it or not, before I started the podcast, I sat down and came up with a a wish list of guests for the show, and you were literally my number one guest on my wish list. So a huge thank you for uh, joining me today. Oh, that's very kind of you. I'm glad to have a chance to talk with you. Me as well. So um, COVID aside, which we're going to get into momentarily, I've admired your thought leadership with respect to how technological innovations can be applied to help solve fundamental problems in healthcare. In particular, your books, Deep Medicine and The Patient Will See You Now, are both must-reads for people interested in the, in the topic and were really both inspirations for me as I thought about what I would do with my career and ultimately helped shape a lot of what I'm doing today at Bioverge. So that said, your thought leadership when it comes to COVID in particular, I think, has been instrumental in helping many of us sort fact from fiction in the face of the global pandemic. So without further ado, today we're going to be discussing uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, specifically the Delta variant, how our response must evolve along with the virus. So, Eric, to help set the stage for our listeners, could you first talk a little bit about some of the biological attributes that make the Delta variant such a formidable adversary? Sure, Neil. Well, you certainly characterize it well. Formidable adversary is a a good way to think of it. If we hadn't had Delta, if it hadn't evolved to this strain, we'd be really in very good shape uh, in the U.S. and throughout many parts of the world. Unfortunately, this evolved to a point where very different from the prior major variants, alpha, beta, gamma, this one took some detours in terms of its spike protein and internal domains. And it's really been a tough one because it's so incredibly hyper transmissible, hyper contagious. And it also does do some evasion of our immune response, including as we'll discuss the vaccine induced immunity response. So because of that, you know, we're going through what may wind up being the worst wave in the U.S., and which is remarkable because it's at a time when we have plenty of vaccines. Uh, and we're already, you know, at hospitalization rates over 85,000, uh, which our peak was 125,000. I don't think anyone would have envisioned we'd be at this point and still a ways to go to get past the Delta wave. So that in itself gives you an impression of how how tough this virus is and how it's overwhelmed the uh, immunity wall that we have, which is a combination of both people who are vaccinated as well as people who've had COVID previously. So they have some natural immunity. But um, Delta has just blown through all that. And, and I want to get to the notion of breakthrough infections here momentarily. 
Um, but just while we're on sort of the, 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 the changes in the biology, could you maybe just spend a minute or two and talk about the, the transmissibility of the Delta variant compared to the original strain of SARS-CoV-2? My understanding is that the r naught of Delta is significantly higher than the, than the original strain, which is leading to the increased transmissibility of the virus. Yeah, I mean, if you want to look at it from the r naught view, it's in the six to eight, whereas the original was, you know, one to two. But if you look at it from what is the viral load in people, uh, a really important study that came out of China, a very rigorous study, showed that it was more than a thousand-fold viral load in people who have Delta infections compared with the original uh, ancestral strain. So that's actually it was uh, 1204. It's a huge increase, you know, magnitude, uh, uh, orders of magnitude more. And that viral load accounts for how easily it spreads, how it's doing things that the previous versions of the virus really didn't do, uh, including the ability to uh, um, engender infections in people who were vaccinated. Uh, So, it's this load of the virus, its ability to attach to the cells in our upper airway uh, and get in and hijack these cells and make uh, enormous amounts of virus quickly. That, that's really the big deal here. And if you compare it to other viruses, right, just for, for a benchmark comparison, right, I, I, I've, I've read it that the r naught of where the Delta is is much more infectious than, than the flu or common cold or even MERS or SARS. Uh, are there other viruses that that the Delta is comparable to out there that that folks may may be more familiar with? Well, I mean, the one that is the CDC uh, had compared it to is chickenpox, which is one of the most uh, infectious uh, pathogens we've ever seen. Obviously, not nearly as uh, dangerous with respect to lethality and um, hospitalizations, but it isn't as contagious as chickenpox. I think that's pretty clear. Um, that's in the 10 to 12 level of R naught, but it's up there. You know, it's way up there. It's it, 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 many would consider it to be as high an infectious uh, respiratory virus uh, as has been seen. But it, you know, it's definitely in the strata that is uh, deep concern and getting our wraps around it. That is, it isn't just vaccines. We have to basically pull out every tool in the kit in order to defend against it. So, not, you know, Eric, you, you had mentioned this. So, you know, not surprisingly, there's a strong desire people have now to return to their pre-COVID lives. You know, and, and as you mentioned, right, that was largely supposed to happen once the vaccines were rolled out. That was obviously prior to the emergence of the, the Delta variant. Um, you know, we're now thirdly in the next wave of the, the pandemic. You know, I've heard this wave uh, being referred to as a pandemic of the unvaccinated, which at best doesn't seem entirely accurate and at worst is potentially dangerously misleading. Could you could you maybe talk about your thoughts there and then in particular this notion of, of breakthrough infections and, and what that means? Right. It isn't unfortunately a pandemic of just the unvaccinated. Plenty of those who've been vaccinated, particularly if they're more than six months out, like the original healthcare workforce and nursing homes and people of advanced age, those were the first people to get vaccinated. And they're now quite vulnerable because they could get infections with Delta. That wasn't the case before Delta arrived. So um, no, it's a pandemic of both 
the vaccinated largely, you know, that's the vast majority, but it also includes the vaccinated. Um, you know, that is uh, the unfortunate sense that people, oh, I, I've been fully vaxxed, I, I'm protected. That's no longer true. You still can get infected. You, it's unlikely you'd wind up in the hospital. That's still possible, unlikely. But getting an infection isn't good because multiple things, you could get long COVID from that, you could transmit it to others, either uh, unwittingly because it's before you develop symptoms. You can get some pretty rough symptoms. Uh, in fact, even to the point where you have to go to a place to get intravenous monoclonal antibody infusions to, um, to inactivate the virus. I mean, so it isn't trivial. This is not just a positive PCR test. These are infections that get people sick. Uh, fortunately, you know, not for the vaccinated people, not the ones that uh, are uh, usually uh, accounting for such need for hospitalization. That, that's a good thing. But, you know, being sick with COVID, most people who've ever had it will know that that is not a good thing. It, it can be a pretty rough illness to, to ride through. And the fact that you got vaccinated and you thought you're going to get to pre-COVID life and then this happens, you know, obviously that that diminishes the confidence uh, in the vaccine. And that's just because uh, of the fact that boosters really are needed uh, and hopefully will be a durable solution to the problem. And, and I want to jump into that point in a minute because I think that's going to be critical. But, you know, obviously there, there's a lot that we know about the Delta variant. And, and you know, you discuss in your op-ed article in The Guardian, right, America's flying blind when it comes to the Delta variant. There seems to be even more that we don't know. So specifically, you talk about the lack of data around breakthrough infections uh, and how that's giving Americans a false sense of security. Can, can you explain a little bit about uh, about your op-ed piece and what you mean by that? Right. Well, you you mentioned it, Neil, in, in saying that pandemic of the unvaccinated, that doesn't acknowledge that the vaccinated people have some risk. And this false sense of confidence and security, we need to put out the awareness that just because you're vaccinated doesn't mean you won't get an infection at this point. And wearing masks, particularly you know high quality, tight fitting masks, distancing, ventilation, avoiding crowds, you know all these different features are very important, just as they were before vaccination. They're complementary. They're additive. So the reason why this is misleading is by not acknowledging the risk in the vaccinated. We're getting more people. Uh, getting Delta infections who are vaccinated because they just don't have that public awareness. And we need to get that out there. The other part of it that you touched on is we don't have the data for the United States. We have to rely on data from other countries because our ability to gather the data and post it basically doesn't exist here at the national level. Which is, is somewhat mind-boggling at, at this stage of the pandemic. Um, I, I want to just touch upon a really important point that you mentioned in terms of, yes, vaccinated people can still come down with an infection. So I think there's a kind of a, a misunderstanding about this idea of sterilizing immunity, right? And sterilizing immunity doesn't happen with the current set of vaccines. Could you maybe explain why that's the case and talk a little bit about where we are today in terms of the vaccines that we have versus, you know, intranasal vaccines that could potentially produce the sterilizing immunity. And I, I know they're sort of much earlier in, in development these days. Right. Well, that's a really important concept to develop. So sterilization immunity uh, through shots wasn't expected uh, because you're basically really going after the blood 
uh, immune response. You know, the, the mucosal immunity that is in the upper airway, particularly nasal mucosa, to get that sterilization immunity, that relies especially on one particular class of immunoglobulins, IgA, and the shots don't get us, you know, sustained high levels of IgA protecting our nasal mucosa and upper airway barrier. So that was the unexpected thing that happened with the mRNA vaccines. When they came out as 95% um, protective against symptomatic infections, the primary endpoint of the trials, they say, whoa, this is better than expected. And indeed, until Delta, there was ev pretty good evidence of not perfect, but close to the kind of mucosal immunity we would want. That is, there were very few breakthroughs, meaning that you know, the, the nasal mucosa was holding up and um, people were holding, you know, the vaccines were protecting them. 1% or less breakthroughs. But what happened with Delta is basically it pierced through the issue of this problem. We now don't have sterilization immunity like we had. It's probably down to, you know, half of what we had, which was, you know, unexpectedly high. And the word sterilization probably is the wrong word because that's kind of like a binary yes or no. But we have half as much mucosal immunity, that is our, our barrier uh, for entry of the virus is about half as good as it was for mRNA um, as when we started this uh, vaccination uh, phase. It's all because of Delta and um, it's because of the waning, you know, the waning of antibodies. Uh, so our blood uh, response, immune response is also not as sharp as it was, um, you know, when you're only one month or four months out from your vaccine, second dose. So that's where we stand. We, we got uh, an unexpected bonus factor uh, for mucosal immunity, but it basically only got us through pre-Delta and it isn't holding up well in the Delta variant wave. So Eric, I think this is actually a nice segue back to an earlier point you you made about the booster shot. So so there's a growing consensus that a that a a, a, a third booster shot or for mRNA vaccines in particular, right, could be very effective about six months after the initial vaccinations. They could confer increased immunity by increasing neutralizing antibody levels. I I think Israel has been doing this already, and I think they've they've had some some great effects to that. What what are your thoughts about rolling that out in in the U.S. Right. Well, we're mainly learning from the Israelis because they've now given over a million boosters uh, to people. Uh, and uh, their data, uh, of course, were the first to show this very diminished vaccine effectiveness against infections. Not so much, of course, a drop in hospitalizations or deaths, but against infections, including symptomatic infections, from what was well over 90 percent to levels of about 40 percent. There were a major drop down. And now what they're showing in the most recent data in recent days is that they're restoring the vaccine effectiveness to that 90% or, or so level with the boosters quickly, which is what you'd anticipate because they basically just activate our memory and very quickly get high levels, you know, a blitz of neutralizing antibodies directed against the spike protein. So the Israeli data are supportive of boosters. But I think what we have to acknowledge is, you know, this isn't going to change all of a sudden. If we start using boosters, it's not going to change the face of the, the U.S. Delta wave. It basically is going to protect the fully vaccinated who are now six months out or more from getting infections, which is important. I mean, that's, that's a good thing. It'll prevent some transmission, illnesses, 
uh, long COVID, but you know we're, we're not going to see a whole lot in the way of reduction of hospitalizations from breakthroughs because they're very few to start with. Uh, but it will be helpful, you know, and and it will help in some respect to break the transmission chain. But it's nothing like getting more people vaccinated. That's what we really need. That's the bang for the vaccines is in the uh, is in the primary vaccination, not in the boosters. And and I want to talk about some some strategies that can be utilized to encourage more people to get vaccinated in a minute. But the other question that that comes to mind is, you know, will we? in the U.S. really be safe until more people worldwide are vaccinated, right? Especially given that areas and the populations that aren't vaccinated across the globe will be sort of a hotbed for potential future variants that may emerge. Um, so how do we think about, about balancing, you know, boosters in the U.S. with really more broadly distributing the vaccine worldwide? Yeah, that's a really uh, critical dilemma. Um, we need both. Uh, right now, the U.S. is the main driver of COVID for the world. I mean, there's more cases that are being uh, generated and spreading here than anywhere else. So we are the number one culprit right now. And states like Florida, Louisiana, and Mississippi are the leading in the world cases per capita of any country or state, which is just incredible. Who would have thought this is possible? So we have done, uh, you know, absolutely, unfortunately, um, a, a horrible um, w execution of getting that very high level of vaccination we needed. Even Israel, one of the highest, uh, UK, other countries, they've had trouble obviously with Delta. That's how tough it is. And so, you know, we would have gotten away with it with, uh, and we did with the alpha variant, but this one has just changed the dynamics. And now we need, you know, 90% plus people who either have full immunization or prior COVID or some type of, um, you know, immunity. Now, the global situation is another compartment, if you will, because if we don't get containment globally, even if we ultimately do get this in the U.S., then we still could get um, circulating serious functional variants coming back to haunt us. So that's why it's so vital that we get both of these done. In fact, perhaps you could say the global mission is, is far more important because there's such a vast majority of the, of the human population who hasn't had any vaccine yet. But you have to also understand the interest that there is a, a lot of vaccine nationalism and people want to get the most protection as possible because no one wants, no one who's reasonable wants to get, uh, go through a COVID infection because you don't know the unpredictability of how sick you might get, no matter how young and healthy you are, because of the risk of long COVID, the risk of, of deterioration. So these are the fine line balances that are very delicate, very tricky. And obviously, um, it depends on your perspective. If you're a place that has got the vaccines and you want to try to help your, your citizenry, okay. But if you're looking at it from a global perspective, it's very different. Yeah. And, you know, there, there's, again, a lot to dive into there. You know, one of the things that you had mentioned before was this idea of, of lack of su surveillance, lack of data, lack of data being shared from, you know, local, state, federal levels. I mean, in the face of growing hospitalizations, you know, what, what should the response be at the you know, individual, local, state and, and federal level, uh, you know, in the face of this, this sort of terrifying Delta variant that we're seeing? Yeah, I think the problem, Neil, is by not having the data in this country, 
it's actually, you know, quite a pathetic situation because, you know, this is a decision that's very important, uh, will affect, you know, tens of millions of people, hundreds of millions of people in this country, potentially. And we don't have our data. You know, we're, we're, that is, you know, there's some counties around the country that have data on vaccinated, unvaccinated, hospitalizations, and, you know, age and time from vaccination, which vaccine, that kind of stuff. We have nothing at the national level where we have just an extraordinary opportunity. We've got 85, 86,000 people in the hospital right now with COVID. And that's the de minimis data we should have from every single patient who's in the hospital today, because that would help guide us as to who needs to get boosters, you know, whether for sure we do need to go ahead um, and uh, what are the risk factors. Because one of the issues here, which is quite prominent, is that other countries that use the 8 to 12 spacing of the mRNA vaccines, 8 to 12 weeks, like Canada, UK, you know, many places use 8 to 12 weeks, partly because they had a vaccine shortage and partly also backed up by the immune response would be superior by spacing longer. But the accelerated spacing with three weeks of Pfizer, four weeks of Moderna that was used in the US and Israel, Qatar and many other countries, that may have set this problem up in many respects. So we need to know that. Uh, we, that data is you know, still the countries that had the, the, the longer spacing, the vaccine effectiveness for mRNA is holding up much better. So that's just another issue about not having the data, and it's really unfortunate. Yeah, and you know another unfortunate, um, you know, compounding factor I think, and, and this relates back to the data, right? I think you know, Eric, since the beginning, you've been a strong proponent of rapid antigen-based testing. But why has rolling out this this rapid antigen-based testing been such a failure in the U.S.? Why have we been so slow to adopt this? Yeah, you can add that to the failure list, all right. That's like way up close to the top. I mean, this is one of those essential parts of the toolkit. Are you infectious or not, right? And that is so critical because the answer can be had quickly, accurately, and it can be used. So, for example, as you well know, one of the big issues right now is going back to school. How do we do that safely? And people are debating about the mask and the distancing in the schools and that sort of thing. Where are the darn rapid antigen tests that should be in every home where each child and each teacher and each staff person, bus driver, each day of school has the test? And if we did that, like it's being done routinely in Denmark, Netherlands, Austria, Germany, and a long list of countries that have safely opened schools, we'd keep the infectious people at home until they were no longer infectious. We're not talking here about a PCR test, which picks up any virus, remnants, you know, very few copies of the virus. We're talking about, are you infectious? And with Delta, that's what we really need to know. So these tests are, can be very inexpensive. They should be supplied by the government. They should be in every household, particularly uh, those that have children who we want to get back to school. And the fact that is, you know, mum is the word. There's no plan on this. It's really extraordinary. It, it, it's really extraordinary and somewhat mind-boggling. I, but Eric, I, I want to go back to a point that you made because I think a lot of the criticism around the rapid antigen-based tests 
is that they're not as accurate as PCR, which, while true, uh, entirely misses the point. Yeah. Can you, can yeah. you explain the nuances? Well, no, the, that's a tin standard. The PCR is, is unhelpful for telling us if a person is infectious. Actually, with PCR, if it's done properly, there is a thing called cycle threshold, CT. And when that's low, that does correspond to the level of infectiousness. But nobody gets that data, right? So what you're basically, it's reported out as PCR positive or negative. Well, if you're positive, you could have a very high CT and be no chance you're infectious, really. So to compare it to that is absurd. The rapid antigen tests stand on their own merit, the good ones. Now, I have to say, there are some that are not worth their uh, use, but there are many that are highly accurate, that are very um, you know, quick and, and can be very inexpensive, uh, but they're not. I mean, the only ones out there practically in the US are uh, Binax that are $12 each. That is a two pack for 23, $24. That's ridiculous. You can't do that every day in a wide scale, you know, in a school, but there are tests out there that could be done, you know, with equal or better results at the cost of a dollar and in less time, like five minutes instead of 15 minutes. So we have, haven't made that a priority. Basically, I think, Neil, is that the, every, the country the leadership was banking on the vaccination program being the kind of end game and just didn't think about what other things that should be part of this. And, and here we are well into the Delta wave and there's no sign that the, that the uh, availability uh, of tests, rapid antigen tests is gonna be made uh, to uh, Americans in the near future. And that's really a problem. And, and Eric, I, I wanna circle back to this notion of long-term health effects that, that you had talked about. So you've been involved um, in some studies that are looking at long-term health effects of people who have had the virus. Can you talk a little bit about long COVID, what it means, who is likely the most susceptible to it? Yeah, there's a lot of misconceptions about long COVID. Uh, you know, people still think that you got to have a really severe illness and then you'll get potentially the issue of chronic uh, symptoms and be some being debilitated. We don't know the true incidence of it. It's somewhere north of 10% and could be as high as 25, 30%, but I don't think it's that high. The point here is that those 10%, who get COVID and they're usually young, healthy people who had mild to moderate cases, not having to go to the hospital. And I have colleagues with this and they are healthy athletic types who now still can, many months later, even a year later, still can even um, re resume their prior activity. Some can't even walk more than a few blocks without getting breathless. I mean, it's just a very potentially very debilitating condition. We have no real effective treatments. We don't even understand truly the biologic basis. We've got theories. The only thing we have to do is prevent it. And we're not doing that right now, obviously, uh, with a Delta wave in the United States. So long COVID is a big deal. It's mostly in young people, because that's where most of the cases are, uh, who are relatively healthy. And um, you know are, they may get over the illness pretty fast, a matter of days, and then it comes back to haunt them on a long-term basis. And we don't even know the duration. Some people, it clears up in a matter of months. Some people, it goes on and still going on now a year and a half plus later. So 
It is, we do not want any more long COVID. We have millions of people with long COVID. We have long COVID clinics now that have popped up all throughout the United States, multidisciplinary clinics. And this is a very big uh, underestimated public health problem that is um, in part because of the denial of it being an issue. But on the other hand, in sharp contrast, the serious problems that, that the people with it are having. Eric, you, you've been involved in a study that used wearable devices to detect long-term changes from COVID. Can you talk a little bit about what that study showed? Yes, that was called. That is called Detect. There's about 40,000 Americans participating. All they have to do is sign up through the app, Detect Study, and uh, their smartwatch, any type of smartwatch or a Fitbit or any fitness band that they are, have on uh, passively gets the data uh, centrally de-identified. And we know, for example, the heart rate is a really great signal. When your heart rate goes up above your uh, resting normal heart rate and it stays there, um, that's a very good sign that you could have an infection if there's no other explanation. And so we have a pretty good signal, actually quite good, uh, for what COVID uh, looks like through things like heart rate and activity steps, uh, sleep when those data are available through a fitness band. And uh, also now we've published not only that signal for COVID detection, but also now the fact that for people who have long COVID, they have this heart rate that stays up and just doesn't go back for many, many weeks, if months. And we're also seeing people when they're vaccinated, their response. So this passive collection of physiologic data is extremely helpful uh, and may help identify those who are at risk for long COVID. Uh, it certainly um, is, would be useful if we took it broadly, adopted it uh, throughout the country. To, as, when we get a, a containment, we only had nearly con getting containment once, and that was in, in just before Delta hit. Um, but that's when you can start to monitor where new hotspots, new outbreaks are just beginning, where there's any confluence of people, you know, any any uh, group of people in any part of the country that are showing lighting up for a potential COVID signal. And as long as there's not some other infectious illness out there like flu, uh, it's a pretty good way to nail down a risk zone and get in there and stop the outbreak in its tracks. So. You know, we're not using this either, Neil. This is yet another tool we developed here. We released it within uh, the first couple of weeks of the pandemic in, in the U.S. in March of 2020. It, it was adopted in Germany. It's used in hundreds of thousands of people in Germany and also in other countries. But in our own country, we can't get you know, a much broader participation. And we obviously can inform people when we see their signal that they may have COVID in. That's, I think, a very useful thing for people because these are low-level differences in heart rate that a lot of people would not be able to detect on their own. I mean, it certainly seems like more people would want to use this type of technology, right? It is, it is available. And, and I think, that, I mean, that leads to my next question is, what role can digital health technologies play in, in really improving surveillance, uh, potentially in finding new outbreaks? I mean, these technologies can apl be applied pretty, pretty broadly, I think, in, in the face of the pandemic. Absolutely. You know, that's what we're missing here is there's no real... Uh, articulated goal to have all the different layers of data. 
that includes this digital sensor data from the wrist, which is rich, wastewater surveillance, mobility data, uh, genomic surveillance, uh, you know, the, the data that we've already discussed with respect to uh, the need for partitioning in the Delta wave, what's going on with the people who are vaccinated getting sick, no, you know, no less the unvaccinated. All this data, real time, which is then getting processed, you know, crunched, analyzed, and getting fed back to the public so they know where they live, what's that, what the hell is going on, which they don't right now, largely. So th there's, it's, it's so unfortunate we're not doing this because it's all out there. I mean, we're not doing genomic sequencing as we should, but that should be out there. Uh, but, you know, the sensor, we have 80 million Americans who have a smartwatch or a fitness band of some kind that would, you know, emit this data. And we could tell you, you know, in one, one little zip code, one neighborhood where something is potentially is brewing, but we're not doing it. And that's, of course, one layer of data. There are so many layers that we are missing. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems like there needs to be some sort of campaigns to encourage more people to utilize, you know, the technologies that they're already wearing on their wrist. Um, but but I, I do want to circle back to the idea of how do we, what do you think is the right approach to encouraging more unvaccinated people in this country to go out and, and get their shots and, and get vaccinated, right? For example, should we be requiring proof of vaccination to use public transportation, to fly, to dine indoors, to go to sporting events or, or concerts or, you know, uh, participate in large public gatherings? I mean, how do we encourage people to, to go out and get vaccinated? Well, we have to stop, you know, the encourage and go to what you just said, Neil. Canada and other places have already done that. You want to go on a plane? A train, public transportation, you have to have proof of vaccination or you have to have some other uh, excuse, you know, from a physician about why you can't get vaccinated. Uh, we're not taking a hard stance on this and it shows. Um, the FDA approval, which should have been done by early June and now we're well into August, that's held us back because that would have led to We've seen a lot of mandates, but those mandates would have come much earlier from companies, from municipalities, from universities, high schools, health systems, uh, the military, a long, long list. We're only part into that. They will, they will increase markedly at the moment, the, the full approval of FDA. That's another thing we could do. Another thing is that the misinformation campaign has not been, there's no, been no counter offensive to it. And that's serious stuff. The anti-vaxxer, uh, completely fabricated, you know, BS that's out there that is being fed to tens of millions of people every day, you know, just making stuff up that isn't true, that is uh, manipulating the uh, VAERS uh, vaccine adverse events reporting data that the CDC puts out, unfortunately, all sorts of things are being done to take down the truth about vaccines. And we're not doing anything that's worthy, meaningful, as an antidote for that poison. Yeah, and I think that that's a huge part of the problem. And, and you know, Eric, that's where I, I think your, your Twitter feed is, is so incredibly helpful, is to cut through all of the, the noise out there and the misleading information. And it really acts as a, as a source of truth for what is actually going on. 
Um, you know, I, I, I want to just talk a little bit about um, COVID over the longer term. I mean, do, do you think COVID will always be with us, similar to the flu, where we will need annual you know, vaccinations or, or boosters, um, you know, basically, you know, for, I, I guess, the foreseeable future or, or forever? Uh, it's hard to know, you know, about, I mean, it will be endemic. Yes, it'll be out there, you know for many, many years, if not in perpetuity, yeah. But uh, if, we're, if it's contained, if it's at such low levels and most people are either you know, vaccinated or have some prior uh, infection immunity, um, it can stay contained, especially if we do the things we've been discussing. So if we start using the tools and the kit that we haven't even used yet. But um, I don't know that it's gonna require frequent boost, booster shots. Yet, I mean, it's possible that the one booster could take us years out, uh, and that would be great. We had thought that that was going to be the case before Delta came along, and it might have, because we saw signs that the the immune response, natural immunity, was quite durable. And then we also started seeing signs that the vaccine immunity, both the uh, antibody and the T cell response was quite quite uh, durable. Delta broke through that, but now with the booster and the activated memory and these, you know, the whole bridging to a different time, maybe we won't need these boosters every six months. That's I'm optimistic. I'm hoping that's going to be the case, but we just don't know until we get there. We didn't know that Delta was going to cause this leakiness of the vaccines for infection. Thank goodness it didn't do that. For hospitalizations and death. So, you know, I think the answer to your question is, is still unknown. But uh, if you look early next year, in 2022, we'll, we'll know the answer about whether the six month booster thing will be um, something we're going to have to look at. One other point on that is, we're not putting enough effort into the pan coronavirus vaccine, the cybercovirus family, to take them all down so that whatever Greek letter variant that comes along, we can squash it. We are not putting in the resources and our priority to that. That and of course the nasal vaccines that you touched on, which would get us to the mucosal immunity. So these other things that we're not doing, giving priority, we should be doing now so that when we get containment, we can keep it and not have to go through any more waves. We've had enough, right? <laughs> We've had more than enough. So um, we're not doing that kind of advanced planning, which, uh, you know, I wish we were really going after the pan-coronavirus vaccine because I, I am confident that we will get there, but we'd get there faster if we were making an all-out effort. Yeah, I think that's a really, really critical point because, I, you know, there's little reason to think the Delta variant is going to be the last variant we're going to see. Hopefully there, there won't be future ones quite as transmissible as the Delta variant, but it seems like it's probably only a matter of time until new ones emerge. Um, yeah, I, that's, that may be true, but I got to tell you, this is one tough variant to outdo. I mean, it's taken over the world here, you know, fast. Um, so in order for it to, to, to overtake, compete with Delta, it's going to have to be, I mean, you, you started with formidable. It's going to be, and it really is with a capital F this is going to be hyper formidable, right? Mm -hmm. So it, it may happen, but, you know, we, the, again, the hope is that uh, have we reached the peak level of transmissibility? Maybe not. And we sure can't count on it. But, um, you know, the, just for hope that we have, because this one is hellish, right? 
Absolutely. It sure is. So I think that, that brings me to my, my next point. Well, how, how, how do you or how should you know, people who are vaccinated uh, think about um, you know, wearing a mask these days, about the social distancing strategy uh, in the wave of, of Delta? Is this something that needs to be sort of re-implemented? You know, a lot of people have you know, wanted to go back to pre-COVID days. There's not as much mask wearing. There's not as much social distancing. Is that something that we need to, to re-engage in, even if you are vaccinated at this point in time? Yes, definitely. Um, you know, this is that Swiss cheese model that's been popularized by the virologist Ian McKay. We got to use every level of protection. And so it isn't just a cloth mask. We need, you know, tight fitting, high quality masks, ideally, you know, either KN94s, which are cheaper, or N95s. Again, that would be smart for the government to send those out to every household. Um, but also, we need the distancing, the ventilation. Uh, you know, avoiding the crowds, um, all the things that we did prior to COVID, some of us did, we got to gear up again, because to get through Delta, uh, it's going to require um, pulling out all the stops to do, to minimize the hit, which already places like Florida, Louisiana, Mississippi has been profound, but, you know, it certainly could, could get to many other corners of this country. But we're not getting that, uh, and a part of it, it circles back to our earlier conversation because people who have been vaccinated, who are the more likely ones to wear masks and follow the best practices, they're a lot of them are got a false sense of confidence. We've got to get them, uh, you know, on the same page that they've got to gear up that it's not just vaccines now to protect; it's everything. Mm -hmm. And Eric, I, I think we could probably talk for another week straight about this topic, um, but I, I do want to be cognizant of, of your time and, and wrap up. Other than your Twitter feed, do you have uh, resources that you would recommend for people who want to separate fact from fiction when it comes to the pandemic and, and the Delta variant? Well, I mean, there are a lot of great people on Twitter who, you know, I've become friends with and I rely upon, you know, it could be immunologists like Akiko Iwasaki or Shane Crotty or Florian Crammel, or it could be, you know, virologists, um, you know, like uh, Angie Rasmussen. Uh, there's so many, my colleague, uh, uh, you know, Christian Anderson, who he had to get off Twitter because he got so much um, abuse through social media, which is obviously a downside. Um, but, you know, I, I know who the experts are. I know who the, in, for the most part, uh, and, um, you know, I rely on them. There's certainly some great epidemiologists out there. Um, Natalie Dean is, you know, one of my favorites. Anyway, so uh, the people in Israel, like Aaron Siegel, I rely upon, you know, very extensively. Um, so I have a group of people who, you know, are kind of my network that I know these folks. I, you know, it's not just through Twitter. I've gotten to know them through other forum interviews or uh, in person, getting to know them, friendships, whatever. So that's uh, helpful because, you know, you can try to read all the literature and all the preprints, but there's stuff is happening so fast out there. And there's on the ground perspective that is, of course, you know, oftentimes different. Um, you know, and also, you know, obviously I network with the folks who, uh, who are the, our, our principal um, uh, public officials quite a bit too. So, you know, overall, you know, we have a cognoscenti out there. They can be found, most of them on Twitter. So it isn't like a one 
one source. I mean, there's many. And, uh, you know, I think we're lucky because it gives us a pulse. As long as you stick with people you can trust, um, you know, I think that it's extraordinarily helpful. I agree. I agree. And you're finding those people you can trust is, is half the battle, especially in light of all the misinformation out there. Um, Eric, I, I do want to wrap up and, and say a huge thank you for, for joining me on the show today in a really great in-depth conversation. So thank you so much. Thank you, Neil. I really enjoyed it, too. Well, Neil, what did you think? I thought that was an amazing conversation. Uh, I'm incredibly grateful to Eric to, to joining me on the show today. Uh, you know, I think, you know, we, we started at the, the basic biology and what makes the Delta variant so much more transmissible and, 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 and uh, in, infectious than the original strain, right? You heard Eric and I talk about it, 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 it as a formidable adversary. And I, I think that's so true. So, you know, we started with the biology, how the R-naughts differ, why it's so much more trans, transmissible. Um, and then, you know, I think he, he really helped dispel a lot of this false sense of security that if you're vaccinated, you are protected. That is just not true when it comes to this Delta variant. You can actually still spread the virus. Uh, you may not be hospitalized. You may not be at risk of dying unless you have significant comorbidities. But, you know, you may still get mild to moderate uh, disease. And who knows what that really means for the long term. So you heard us talk a, quite a bit about this idea of long COVID, what that means, how that tends to affect, you know, largely younger and healthier people as well. So I think we have this false sense of security because we want to get back to normal, but we're just not there yet as a society. The discussion about long COVID I, I found particularly concerning. Uh, it seems it's an issue that continues to be neglected. Why do you think that is? I think that's true. And I, I think there's um, just a, a lot of um, misinformation about there. I think there's a lot of just misunderstanding about what long COVID is. And I, I just I think it's 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 a, a subject that needs further investigation as well. Right. We, we don't exactly know who is affected by long COVID, why they're necessarily affected. Um, so I think it's, it's an area that needs a lot more study. You heard Eric talk about some of the uh, some of the studies that he's done in terms of incorporating wearables um, in, in terms of, you know, long term changes that have resulted from COVID. So I think there's a lot more research to be done. But I think this idea of long COVID needs to be a, a topic of greater discussion. Um, and I don't think it gets enough attention. The data issues he raised are mind-boggling. The testing failures you mentioned and all this as we're sending kids back to school. We like to think about how medically advanced we are, but these are startling failures. What do you make of them? Yeah, it's pretty scary, Danny. I mean, in many ways, I feel like we're in the dark ages, right? I mean, the, the, the U.S. was supposed to be, you know, supposed to have one of the, the greatest healthcare systems, you know, in the world. You know, we're supposed to be technological innovators. Uh, and yet we see in the face of a, a, a pandemic like this that the systems are broken, right? There is not enough um, systems that talk to one another from the, the local, state, federal levels, we don't have the infrastructure. We don't have ways to, you know, communicate electronically. We don't have ways to even, you know, track the, the number of infections to measure, um, you know, the, 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 all the data that we need from people who are infected to look at the different variants to understand who is vaccinated and got the, uh, you know, got the uh, infection versus who was unvaccinated. I mean, it's just a startling failure at such a high level. 
it is, as as you said, it is mind boggling. Um, And the other thing that I just can't quite wrap my head around is, you know, this idea of a a lack of of rapid antigen based testing, right? You heard Eric and I talk about that. If we just had that, right, I, I think we would be getting children back to school in a much more normal fashion. Right. They largely would probably not have to socially distance or wear masks if we could roll out this testing, which, you know, should be readily available, you know, a year and a half plus into the pandemic. And it's just not. Um, So, you know, when you combine that with the lack of infrastructure, it's just it's it's just it's really it's just it's disappointing, to say the least. One thing he mentioned was the thinking that the vaccine was going to be an endgame. I think to some extent that might explain the the systemic failures we've seen. What's the price we're paying for that? Yeah, I mean, I think you see it now with the Delta variant. I mean, this is this is now the third wave and hospitalizations are are higher in many areas than they were during the first two waves. Right. And so I think it it is quite devastating. And, you know, I, I think a lot of us put. Uh, a lot of emphasis on the vaccines. I know I certainly did. You know, I was certainly of the opinion when the vaccines rolled out, you know, that's the light at the end of the tunnel. We'll start getting back to normal. And, you know, a lot of us didn't account for uh, the Delta variant because we didn't know it at the time. Um, but I think we're, we are now paying the price. And I think what we're not doing well enough is adapting in the face of the data that we have. Not that we have a lot of the data, but, you know, we're, we're, we're seeing how devastating the Delta variant is, and we're really slow to adapt our behavior, which I think is probably the most frustrating part. How hopeful are you that we will arrest this virus and get? Well, I, I still remain very hopeful. I mean, I, I think I think we will. Uh, I guess I'm an eternal optimist, so I, I think we will. It's going to take time. It's going to take a lot of effort uh, on everyone's behalf. You know, I, I think you heard Eric and I talk about some ways to, you know, help encourage people who are not vaccinated to get vaccinated. I think those types of things, such as requiring proof of vaccination to use public transportation, to fly, to dine indoors, right, go to sporting events or con- like, I think that needs to be implemented immediately. Uh, I, don't, I don't see any reason to wait for that. And then I think it also falls on all of our shoulders, even people who are vaccinated, to be aware that you can still get infected, you can still spread the virus. So you still need to you know, wear a mask, maintain social distancing, right? We're not out of the woods yet. Um, so it does come down to us as individuals. And then there's a lot that, you know, local state and the federal government could be doing uh, in the face of the Delta variant um, that, that's just not happening today. Well, until next time. Thanks, Danny. Until next time. Thanks for listening. The BioVerge podcast is a product of BioVerge Inc., an investment platform that funds visionary entrepreneurs with the aim of transforming healthcare. BioVerge provides access and enables everyone to invest in highly vetted healthcare startups on the cutting edge of innovation, from family offices and registered investment advisors to accredited and non-accredited individuals. To learn more, go to BioVerge.com. This podcast is produced for BioVerge by the Levine Media Group. Music for this podcast is provided courtesy of the Jonah Levine Collective.